triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. (coughs) We have a wonderful gift in Psalm 19. In his 1958 book, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis wrote, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. We know of Bach and Handel and Haydn all writing very prolific pieces. Some of you may know. I love the poetry. I love the image that we hear at the beginning of this psalm, the heavens telling the glory of God, of the sun dependably running its course, steadfast and golden, giving structure to our days and our nights. I experience great comfort when I look at the night sky. The constancy of the stars tells me that all is right with the universe. The unchanging order of the constellations so mysterious and distant, yet so full of twinkling light, feels like a silent call to order, a divine harmony that rings out to the end of the world. It's no wonder that Psalm 19 is paired in our lectionary today with the Ten Commandments, the moral structure for so much of the world. And while we might not describe them with the zeal of the psalmists, more desired than gold and sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb, we enjoy their rightness and their clarity. The Ten Commandments don't just provide us with order and measure for our own personal lives. In the Christian West, they moved long ago even into the realm of civil order. In the ninth century CE, Alfred the Great prefaced his code of Saxon law with them, and the Enlightenment philosopher Thomas Hobbes used them in formulating his understanding of the social contract. Given their structuring function and their tie to our laws, they really have become a cultural symbol of order and measure. Order and measure. How we long for it. How we fear the threat of moral chaos. I wonder, though, is it really the order that the psalmist loves? Is it really the structure by which we take comfort? I feel that the psalmist loves about commandments is not really the order that they bring to earth. I feel what the psalmist loves is the trusting relationship with God that the commands teach us. It is the divine voice in the heavens that comforts him. It's the glory of God that shines in the stars, not just their order and precision. The psalmist loves the stars because 
they reflect the light of their trustworthy creator. How easy it is to latch on to the Ten Commandments, posting them in public places, using them individually as a measuring stick for our souls, or even more often as a measuring stick for the souls of our neighbors. How easy it is to hold on to them for clarity rather than to live deeply into the trusting relationship that they imply. I think it's important that we remember the structure that the Ten Commandments give us is not based on a system of reward and punishment. Reward for adherence is mentioned only in the command to love father and mother. And the only mention of punishment is found in God's warning that God is a jealous God. So not surprisingly, God does not need to use sticks and carrots to motivate us to hear God's words. The motivating factor is trust, and it is found in the recognition of God's authority as the creator and as the Lord. It's found in remembering all of the good acts of redemption, in remembering how God has always been with us. Indeed, we hear in the original Hebrew language that God gives us not ten commandments, but ten words. Ten words of instruction. And they are the only words that are spoken directly by God to all of God's people ever. And while a commandment can be barked out, thrown at us as an order to be obeyed, words of instruction and words of teaching are heard through the building of relationship. Now that I have brought you up out of slavery in Egypt, God explains to God's people in today's reading from Exodus, it's time for you to learn how to live in covenant with me. Here is who I am, how time will unfold for us in community, and how you are to relate to your neighbors and to me. Here's what God says. First, here's who I am. I'm your creator, and I am your sustainer. And you must not allow anything to come between you and me. I alone can satisfy your longings, and as the creator of all that is, I cannot be limited by the images of your own devising. Neither can I be manipulated by your words or any magical incantations of my mysterious name. Nor can my name be used to show that I am exclusively on your side. Secondly, here is how you are to structure your time. As the sun crosses day into night, so will your time with me have order and pattern. Your time will be ordered specifically for the building up of relationship with me and with your neighbor, 
right relationship will involve participation. Participation with each other and participation with a time of rest, the Sabbath, built into creation itself. And you're also to ensure the uninterrupted flow of tradition between generations so that wisdom and faith can pass unimpeded from child to parent forever. And finally, God suggests, here is how you're to order your common space. Communal space will not be a space for the destruction of human life. Not through killing, and not through family bonds being destroyed by adultery. No one, not even the powerful, may take what does not belong to them. Justice must reign, with impartial judges and credible witnesses who will protect the cry of the vulnerable among you. And you're to be satisfied with what I give you, and that is all. And your care for your neighbor must show in your actions and fill even the secret recesses of your hearts. Now seen in this light, the Ten Commandments, explains theologian Walter Brueggemann, are not to be taken as a series of rules, but as a proclamation in God's own mouth, in God's own words of who God is and how God is to be practiced by a community. These ten words, they are a gift from God. They are a life-giving gift. You know, half a century ago, C.S. Lewis gave a description of the emptiness and the uncertainty and the general lostness of the society in which he existed. 50 years ago, and it is the same society that we inhabit today. His is a description of a society which desperately needs a solidarity with God. His describes a world that is broken. He says Christians increasingly live on a spiritual island, And new and rival ways of life surround it in all directions. And the tides are coming up further and further on the beach each and every time. You know, I can hear the words of Christian leaders in many places saying, you know what, if we just follow the Ten Commandments, we'd be a lot better off. If we just put the Ten Commandments in front of the courthouse again, we wouldn't have the trouble that we have. I'd posit to you that they are wrong. And if we think that that is true, then perhaps we are wrong as well. The real problem in our world is not where the Ten Commandments are or are not posted. The real problem in our world is greater than any individual crimes that are ongoing. The problem in our world, the real problem in our world, is the basic breaches of trust. The breaches of trust 
in a broken, broken world. The way we live with God and the way we live with each other. And there is one way forward, and we have it. The church has the way to move forward from the depravity of this life. The church has the way because the entirety of our history gives us the way. Everything in our family album, everything from the time of God's creation to the book of Revelation that says, this is a life of relationship. I am building it for you because I love you. I'm putting in place opportunities for you to trust each other, to grow with each other, to repent when you have done wrong, and to build relationship. To repent, to build relationship, and to respect the dignity of every human being. Because that's the work we're called to. We have been called to this work, and it is work. It's hard work. I won't stand up here and tell you every day when I go home, I knock on all my neighbor's doors. I check on them to see how they've been doing. I don't do it. It's hard work, but it's work we've been called to. God has called us to this place and said, it's not enough to be good. It's not enough to be right. It's not enough to be just. God is asking of us to be exemplary exemplary in the way we speak to others, exemplary in the way we handle our anger, exemplary in the way we choose to reconcile, exemplary in the way we hold our tongues or don't. And why? Because we are disciples of Jesus Christ and kin and creation of a loving God. And we're called not only individually to be transformed daily, not only to be collectively transformed daily, but to transform the world and let them know we have the solution to the broken, broken world. We know the answer, and that answer is repentance and relationship with God and with our neighbor, with a sense of building of trust, Again, it is a way of living that is marked with work. It's also a way of living that is marked with a desire for peace, a desire for love, a desire for vulnerability, a desire for relationship, a desire for community, a desire for those who are less than to be equal to, a desire for those who have not to have, to share. It's a way of living that's marked by accountability and commitment. Commitment to the truth as we know it. That our yes is our yes, our no is our no. And above all, it is a way of living that is made possible only through the grace of God only through a God who loves us so dearly and has redeemed us from sin and from death and has made us holy and has made us God's.